7 in 10 full-time workers would consider switching jobs for better benefits. Benefit strategies are crucial to building a competitive advantage. But how can employers meet diverse priorities across industries and demographics? Benefits 2.0 from Economist Impact, supported by Nuveen, a TIAA company, explores how benefits empower individuals, elevate companies, and drive the U.S. economy. Search Economist Impact Benefits 2.0 to learn more. Sponsored by Nuveen, a TIAA company. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. As women flooded into the formal labor market in the mid-20th century, working part-time was a desirable middle ground. But pick apart the data, and it's clear that part-time work comes at a cost not only to women's pay, but also to their career progression. And as smartphones and mobile money have spread across Africa, so has sports gambling. For a long time, Ethiopia lagged behind the trend. But the gambling market is liberalizing there, and Ethiopians are piling into the betting line. First up, though. Seventy years ago, masses of Soviet citizens proudly sang this song to celebrate the foundation of the People's Republic of China. It goes, Moscow, Beijing, people go forward for the bright path, for the lasting peace under the banner of freedom. It specifically praises the closeness of the relationship between the two communist leaders, Joseph Stalin and Mao Zedong. It's clear, too, about which nation is the more powerful. The lyrics here are, this is the mighty Soviet Union, alongside the new China striving. Since that song was written, much has changed. The relationship between China and what's now Russia has had its ups and downs. These days, it's close again. This week, Chinese Premier Li Keqiang is in Moscow for trade talks. And Chinese forces, alongside those of other Asian countries, are conducting military exercises in Russia. China has stepped in after the Western sanctions on Russia because of what it was doing in Ukraine. Angela Stent is a professor at Georgetown University. She recently wrote a book called Putin's World, Russia Against the West and with the Rest. And it's enabled Russia to avoid the isolation that the West wanted to impose on it. It signed a $400 billion gas deal with Russia on terms that the Russians wouldn't have signed on a couple of years before, but they didn't really have any choice. And the Chinese have really backed the Russians up, supporting them in the United Nations Security Council. In recent years, circumstances have brought the two closer together. It has suited them both Um, to sort of join together and, again, push back uh, against things that that the U.S. is doing. I also do believe that the Trump administration's dual policies of a trade war against China and sanctions against Russia have pushed the two countries closer together. The alliance could challenge America and the West, but it's not an equal partnership. For the first time in its history, and 
perhaps for the first time in European history, a European country that Russia is, is pivoting towards China and is not just pivoting towards China, actually is becoming dependent on China. Arkady Ostrovsky is The Economist's Russia editor. It is different from the previous era, which started in, in 1949. That was a relationship where Russia was the big brother. and The Soviet Union was a senior partner in that relationship, economically, militarily, politically, in every respect. And Stalin made sure that Mao understood that. And how do we see this closeness growing between the two countries now? There are all the statements between the two leaders of the unprecedented level of friendship. I think Xi Jinping has been to Russia, as he said himself, more than to any other country in the world. Putin has invited Xi Jinping to celebrate his birthday. And um, recently, Vladimir Putin gave uh, Xi Jinping a cake, etc., etc. So it, on, the, on, the, on this sort of the top level and the way Russia and China want you to see it, particularly if you're sitting in Washington or in any European capital, is this is the closest relationship it's ever been. So you say that this this is a relationship, the projection of which is, is quite close. Does it go beyond that? Is, it, is there much behind the projection of closeness? Yes and no. It's not just a, a front. It's not, it's not just a pretense. Certainly, Russia is becoming economically, politically, technologically dependent on, on China. Russia sells its most advanced weapon systems to China. So there is substance uh, in this relationship, but it's not just a Potomkin relationship. Chinese companies, for example, are now being allowed into oil and gas projects. But if you look at the level of private investment, for example, there is very little private Chinese money going into Russia for the same reason that there is very little Western money is now going to Russia. And that's to do with property rights. That's to do with the rule of law. It's a very top-level relationship. It's a relationship between the two leaders, and it's a relationship between China's Communist Party and the state and Russian state-owned enterprises. If you go down uh, to the private level, uh, it's much less pronounced. So you you mention a kind of dependency of, of Russia on China. What do you mean by that? China is the biggest buyer of Russian oil, and Overall, Russia is dependent on China, and you see that sometimes playing out in foreign policy decisions which China makes. You see it most glaringly in in Central Asia. You go to Dushanbe, the capital of Tajikistan, and it is extraordinary. There is a palace of officers, which was a present from the Chinese. There is a new parliament building going up, a new government building going up, and those are presents from the Chinese Communist Party as well. China is responsible for most of its infrastructure projects, uh, the roads, the power stations, uh, the tunnels. As one of my interlocutors put it, China is now doing what the Soviet Union used to do. And Tajikistan, of course, is a former Soviet state, as uh, other Central Asian republics. Russia nominally is still sort of the big brother. Russian language is widely spoken. Tajikistan is a member of Russian military alliance. But you look closely at what Chinese are doing, and it's very clear that Central Asian countries see China as a dominant player. So you, you say that in a sense that the two countries have never been closer, but on the other hand, there are these underlying tensions, this, this asymmetry in the relationship. All, all told, do you see the two countries growing closer still, growing closer through time? There is a palpable resentment still of, of China in, in the population. What this means 
is that, yes, the leaders of the two countries can be still getting closer. The, the problem and the extent of Chinese presence will be tested not in Putin's time, but in the next political cycle. Because whoever will come to power, any populist leader, any popular leader, will most likely will want to turn Russia back towards the West, will want to reestablish a relationship with the West. It will be only at that point where the extent of Chinese influence uh, and the extent of Russia's dependence will be really, truly tested. Arkady, thank you very much for coming in. Thank you. Seven in ten full-time workers would consider switching jobs for better benefits. Benefit strategies are crucial to building a competitive advantage. But how can employers meet diverse priorities across industries and demographics? Benefits 2.0 from Economist Impact, supported by Nuveen, a TIAA company, explores how benefits empower individuals, elevate companies, and drive the U.S. economy. Search Economist Impact Benefits 2.0 to learn more. Sponsored by Nuveen, a TIAA company. For those trying to balance their careers with raising a family, part-time work can seem like an attractive option. One in five workers in the world works in a part-time job, which means fewer than 35 hours a week. And it's particularly women. That's Sasha Nauta, The Economist's public policy editor. In the European Union, to take one example, nearly one in three women of working age work part-time, compared to one in about 12 men. But for women, there is a cost. Those who work part-time are finding themselves trapped in jobs with lower pay and fewer prospects. The rise of part-time work is tied with the entrance of women into the labour force, which is mostly the second half of the 20th century. Millions of women who have never before been employed in industry are now enlisted in the nation's labour forces. They are stepping in wherever they are needed to do a man's job as economies sort of shifted from manufacturing to services. And it was a really good tool to get women into the labour market, particularly in countries with perhaps slightly more traditional gender norms, where there was a question of, oh, my goodness, what's this going to mean for the family? And so the pressures, the attractiveness of part-time working is the same now as it was then when the labour market opened up? Well, it remains really important for helping women work, particularly if they're returning to work after, say, giving birth or if they live in a country with ongoing traditional gender norms, it's much better that they are working at all if the alternative wouldn't have been working. And it's quite clear, unsurprisingly perhaps, that family obligations are the most mentioned motivation for why women choose to work part-time. In America, 34% of female part-timers mention family obligations as their main reason for doing it, compared to only 9% of male ones. Numbers are slightly higher in Europe. And to that extent, you could say, well, great, right? I mean, if women want to do both of these things, look after their families and have a job, isn't part-time work a wonderful way of bridging those two ambitions? And isn't it? Up to point, yes, absolutely. And this is kind of where you run into this question of free choice. Is it an unconstrained choice? And individual women can decide that for themselves. But the thing I would carefully point to is things like, well, how's childcare sorted? How's elderly care sorted? 
What's parental leave like? Once all of those things are as we'd like to see them, if you then still see a large share of women working part time, then that's their choice. I mean, what a woman or a man wants to do with their balance of working and being with their family or looking after loved ones is a personal choice. So yes, free choice once all the infrastructure around it is sorted. So in your view, the only risk then for women joining the workforce in a part-time capacity is whether or not that's genuinely a free choice or constrained in some other way? No, I don't think that's the only risk. The other one is economic independence. So often the consequences for their pay, for their pension, for the gender pay gap aren't immediately clear. You see that countries with high part-time work ratios amongst women also have higher gender pay gaps. The reasons behind that very much differ from country to country, but three sort of areas stick out. Firstly, in nearly every country that has data on this stuff, part-time jobs are on the whole paid worse per hour than full-time jobs. Secondly, part-timers are more likely to end up in so-called bad jobs, something you see particularly in the United States, where often there are very few legal rights, fewer training possibilities, that sort of thing, so an ability to develop yourself and therefore grow. And the third thing is that it can become a trap. It can become something you get stuck into, partly for home life reasons, but also because of those first two reasons, if it's not a very good job, you're also less well-placed to transition to other jobs that might have higher pay or higher promotion possibilities. So this trend in part-time work is exacerbating a gender pay gap that is already pretty bad. Correct. And it's also that the rewards for working disproportionate hours have been going up. There was an interesting study by the National Bureau of Economic Research recently, which found that America's gender pay gap would be as much as 46% smaller if it hadn't been for the increasingly disproportionate rewards for working extra hours since the 1980s. So in other words, there is a premium for those who are willing to work all hours in flexible schedules, marry their job, so to speak, and men are overrepresented in that group. And then on the other hand, you also have a growth of very short hour jobs, which are disproportionately made up by women. So put those two together and you can see how you get a growth in inequality. So on the whole, for all the norm changes that we've seen between the generation of our parents and us, men still are much more likely to work excessive hours. In America, 20% of dads compared to just 6% of mums work over 50 hours a week. One of my favourite stats I ran into was that In a couple, when the man works more than 60 hours, his female partner is three times as likely to quit her job to support that. But if the flip side happens, so if a woman is working more than 60 hours a week, it doesn't happen at all. The man just keeps the same hours. But a lot of this discussion around part-time work is framed around becoming a parent. If this is just a nature of part-time work, then what if more dads simply stay home, become the stay-at-home dads. Does the trend then reverse? Interesting question, and one that quite a lot of modern fathers are asking. Unfortunately, we're not there yet. There's increasingly clear data that men who ask to work part-time or to work flexibly are actually less likely to get a yes than women are. So there's discrimination in simply getting those kind of terms from your employer. And then secondly, we've seen that there's discrimination amongst once you are a part-time man and you want to apply to, say, a full-time job, you will be discriminated against more 
than a woman who's worked part-time. So at the moment, it's not just that men are cavemen and are not willing to sort of do their share in the family. It's actually that the workplace itself is not treating men and women equally, and that doesn't just go one way. It also goes against men who actually want to do their fair share of work in the family. So as long as those kinds of double standards continue to exist, I don't think it's a big surprise that many couples will decide it makes more sense for her to scale back her career than him. Thanks for your time, Sasha. Pleasure. Ethiopia has seen crackdowns on various vices, including shisha and prostitution, and recently on alcohol adverts. Yet the government has a surprisingly lenient stance on gambling. The number of punters has been rising, and many companies are getting in on the action. While those investing in betting shops might win big, people who use gambling as a means to top up their income may not end up being as lucky. In the space of a year, sports betting has gone from being almost entirely non-existent to a booming industry which has taken off in Addis Ababa, the capital, and in towns around the country. Tom Gardner is The Economist's Addis Ababa correspondent. It's been growing around the continent in countries like Nigeria, Kenya, South Africa, Ghana in particular. Uh, Some of these countries have multi-million dollar industries by this point. Ethiopia has been a laggard. It's really only in the past year that it's it's taken off at all. So it's it's playing catch-up. So why is sports betting suddenly becoming so popular there? Well, as in other countries uh, you know, around Africa, the main reason has been the spread of smartphones uh, and mobile money, which makes it easier for people to place their bets at any time of day. Uh, Ethiopia is still behind on mobile money comparatively. Um, so the companies you know, still rely on bricks and mortar shops and kiosks. But the real game changer here is the telecoms infrastructure, which was really behind other countries in the region. Uh, that has improved quite significantly in the last couple of years, which I think is the key reason that, this, that the industry is now viable at all. Uh, although the government does still have this tendency uh, to shut down the internet for political reasons, which uh, has proven a real real headache for in recent months for some of these companies. And the, the government supports this, this spread of betting? Well, it's turning a blind eye now, and the National Lottery Administration is, in the past year, has licensed 18 betting companies, uh, which is a real change because up until 2013, it licensed none, and it took four years to, to license the very first one. And that's a real change because in the past, it was quite a con- restrictive environment, uh, much more so than in neighboring countries like Kenya. There was a casino in the 1960s under Emperor Haile Selassie, but that was closed by the uh, Marxist Jinta known as the Derg in the 70s and 80s, and that the current ruling party, um, which has been in power for 28 years, that's always had a, it's been very suspicious of, of gambling until very recently. Really, the shift has been in the last year or two. And what about the people themselves? Is, is there a broad approval of, of the notion of betting? I think there is a, certainly among you know, the older generation, there is a bit of a taboo uh, around betting. But I wouldn't say, I, for a conservative religious country, I think it's surprising how relaxed people are, actually are about it. I think um, this, even though this is the first time that this you know, betting has become bigger business. But in the past, you know, there was kind of traditional betting, informal betting. That's always gone on under the radar uh, for many years. So what's changed now is that it's, you know, business is entering the, the, the betting sector. So it's, it's right there on the high street in the, in the form of gambling shops. What, what yeah. are those shops like? 
Well, it's a range. On the one hand, the majority are, you know, very small uh, branches, basically just kiosks in the corner of bars with, you know, young men queuing up uh, with beers in their hands. But uh, a couple of the newest companies are, are much more upmarket, which I think speaks to the fact that, you know, now big business is entering the industry. You know, widescreen TVs, computers, um, Chinese signs on the windows uh, aiming to attract uh, Chinese construction workers. That's a big target market for many of these firms. So it's becoming a, a shinier, more... A swanky industry. And, and what's the, the feeling within them? I mean, uh, compared with other betting shops you, you may have been to? Well, it's almost exclusively young men. And I don't know if that's different to, to, to many countries in the world, but it's certainly not the wealthiest. I mean, most of the people were maybe not unemployed, but certainly kind of partially or informally employed young men. And you met with some, some of the gamblers in these shops? Did they, did they talk to you about what, what it is that keeps bringing them back? Uh, yes. I mean, a lot of them were fairly frank about it. They said they needed the money. Uh, some, some of them said they were said they were addicts. Uh, one man said to me, "You know, this is the only place you could possibly get this kind of money, so we just keep coming back." Um, and I think that's that is a that's a crucial part of the story. I think gambling is 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 kind of a an opiate in a place like Ethiopia, where where the economy though is growing very fast. You know, eight to ten percent a year, one of the fastest in the world. It's still not creating the jobs and wages that, that's that are needed. So I think this is fueled by or well, this craze is fueled by economic frustration to a large extent. But what we know about uh, betting and betting shops is is generally the house always wins. So, so what kind of effect is this going to have on an already pressured populace? Yes, well, I mean, if I think if if it can raise some tax revenues and provide some employment in cities like Addis Ababa, then it's then it's for the good. I think a re- relatively liberal approach is probably best. But I I do worry that without a you know sort of public health emphasis from the government, you know, advertising campaigns, thing you know things like that to warn people of the dangers of of problem gambling, to, to alert them to the fact that they probably will not win. This, this might become, you know, without that, without that, this might become an extra social problem uh, on top of the many the country is already uh, grappling with. Tom, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much, Jason. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here tomorrow. With the highest number of young STEM graduates per capita in the EU, Ireland has the people and skills your company needs to succeed here. IDA Ireland, the National Investment Development Agency, can help you find and nurture the people you need to internationalise and thrive. Our talent is just one of the extraordinary benefits Ireland has to offer. Learn more at idaireland.com. Invest in Extraordinary.